Hey, welcome to Every Night's a School Night. Managed to get a couple July episodes in. This one's going to be a straight shot, a straight shooter. You know, it's very easy for me to get distracted and want to, I don't know, I'm always wanting to do something else with this show. It's gotten more into sampling, which I don't want that to be a distraction, even though it's fun. I think sampling is a lot of fun. And there's something, I don't know, I, I like collaging audio in that way, where you just find a sample that either fits perfectly or is strange enough to change your perception of what you're about to hear musically. And when you use a sample as a lead-in or an interlude, it can completely change how your brain interprets what you hear. And the way that a, a, the intro of a song can seemingly match up perfectly to the end of a, a statement made in a sample is very interesting to me. But I don't want it to be a, a, a constant focus. I know I've used them in the past, but I've never wanted it to be something I do every episode. But you know what's not interesting is talking all about my sampling philosophy. Here's what I think about sampling. Sampling. Although I will say, just my last word on sampling is, I've always found it interesting that it's called sampling. Here's a little sample. You want a little sample? I mean, I think of that purely in a deli context. I'm going to the deli. Uh, I'm going to get some samples. I also think of it as kind of a, a stingy, you know, someone who wants free things. Not that there's anything wrong with free things. Is anything truly free? Are samples truly free? What price do we pay for a sample? Are you talking audio? Are you talking deli? Both. But there's this kind of idea, too, that in the same way that you know a deli sample is free. Here I said I wasn't going to keep talking about sample philosophy, but this point's important. You know, in the same way, though, that, you know, you get a, a free sample at the deli or at Costco. Costco. When you go to Costco and they give you like a little cut of a hot dog, a little a little cut of some so summer, so you get some summer sausage at Costco. Um, you know, in the same way that that sample is free, I guess we kind of take that approach to sampling things via audio where we don't owe anybody anything if it's short enough. But what's the percentage? How much can you sample of something before you're stealing? How many free samples can you ask for at the deli before you're a thief? I don't know. But yeah, I'm enjoying the, the sudden spike in hot weather here. I guess the word spike has a different connotation right now. Everyone's looking at these charts have people ever stared at charts as much as they are right now? At line graphs? It's the year of the line graph. They're based on a certain sample size. Taking samples of people. Um, but I'm going to start out here. You know, here's a quote. It's from a poem. It's from a... A teachings of the Buddha book, it's, it's just various parables, various little stories, occasionally a poem. 
Uh, and uh, it, it's all, you know, they're all based on various sutras, all, all based on various early teachings, for the most part. Uh, but there's one, there was a poem, and I'm not going to read the whole poem, because, you know, I like samples, I like songs, I, I don't want this to be a show where I read whole poems. I may have done that before, you may consider me talking to be just one long-form poem, I mean, I kind of think of it that way. Uh, a free-form poem you know, stream of consciousness poem. There's no, you think that this is dialogue. You think that this is commentary. This is just one long stream of consciousness poem. But there was a poem in there in this book that I like, and it's the last, it's actually the last entry in the entire book. And I happened to be reading it, I believe while my mom was dying in surgery, so I and I, it's kind of a blur because I was meditating in the ICU and I was reading from this book which she had bought me at Teachings of the Buddha, and so I don't really remember what I was reading because while I didn't feel consumed with anxiety, I had a kind of a sense that something bad was happening. Something bad was already happening, you know, being in the ICU to begin with. But when she was in surgery, I kind of had a feeling something bad was happening. And so I don't really have a recollection of reading this exact passage. But it was the last passage, and I finished the book. And that wasn't planned, but I finished the this Teachings of the Buddha book while she was in surgery when her when she initially died. And so that was all very fitting to me. And, uh, you know, I won't, I won't go on too much more about that. Um, although I should say, you know, I know that... I'm very self-conscious of bringing up heavy subject matter or very personal subject matter, like, you know, the death of a parent. And for me, it's all very casual. You know, for me, it's like, it's sacred, but it's like what I've said on here before, where the most mundane, casual things are sacred to me. And not that losing an important person is, is a mundane thing. But I feel that it's so central to just what it is to be alive and what it is to have just... It's so central to common human experience that I, when I say something is mundane or casual, that's not a pejorative. That's not meant to downplay the power that something has, because that's been really one of the one of the most powerful epiphanies I've had and is the realization that the everyday and the common, the shared experience, the things that we can relate about, those are the things that actually hold the most power. As much as I love the esoteric, as much as I love the secret and the hidden, the occult for that matter, it's really so much simpler than that. And sometimes it takes going through those hidden areas, or at least trying to navigate them, to actually understand how powerful the casual and mundane is. Sometimes you have to go that route. You have to go deep down. And not to say you can't go there again, not to say that there isn't some value to secrets, or to just esoteric you know, ritual, for that matter. But it's really just living your life, breathing air. And there's a reason why so much, you know, there's, there's a reason why so much of, of spiritual practice, especially Eastern, revolves around breath, something you take for granted, something that you, you have to tell people to do in order to center themselves, which is so funny. 
So many of these things are, are just us getting distracted from the things that are already there. And that's kind of what I mean about the mundane and the casual. Because you think if you're a living, breathing person, and that's even just a turn of phrase, living, breathing person, but you'll take breathing for granted until you can't breathe. Until coronavi hits you. Until you're trying to run up a hill. But normally you don't think about your breathing. You don't think of it as something that you need to control or that you can be deliberate about in order to achieve a certain effect. And so that's a, the perfect example of the mundane power and how the things that might have the greatest impact on you are just there, but they're not decorated in the most attractive, elusive symbols they may not be ritualized in a way that appeals to you. Because so much of these things do just center around what appeals to you aesthetically. And the things that might actually work for you could be decorated in a way that you think that simply repels you, that simply turns you away. And that's a great test. Seeing... Seeing if those things that turn you away because of the way they are decorated can be incorporated into your life, and in a way that feels right. You know, because there's certain aesthetics, even to things that I believe in or do, there's certain aesthetics or decorations associated with it that I don't think I will ever be able to comfortably adopt or integrate into my life. But that said... I'm able to still take something from what those things are associated with. Like, you'll never see me in beads and a robe until next week when I'm wearing beads and a robe. But you'll probably never see me in beads and a robe because it's not about the beads and the robe. You'll never see me dressed like a Catholic priest, except in two weeks when I will be dressed like a Catholic priest. But, uh... You know, you'll never see me dressed a certain way because, you know, that's all just decoration. And decorations are great, but it's you don't have to take all of it on. Literally take it on. Wear it. You don't have to wear the thing that impacts you. Although many people need that. Many people want to be decorated. Many people are attracted to the decorations. When some people think about love, they need it to be illustrated with a pink heart in that non-heart shape that we all know is a heart. You know, we all need it to be that pink heart shape. Like when you say a heart, it's funny that you, what first comes to mind is that shape that isn't what a real heart looks like. And I know I'm not blowing anybody's mind by saying, do you know that symbol we use everywhere that looks that we call a heart? It's on Valentine's Day cards and like... Middle-aged women's t-shirts? You know, that's not what a real heart looks like. Which is really impressive. The fact that this is not really anything what a real heart looks like, yet we all think of it. And even if we are loving people, even if love is important to us, that particular symbol doesn't appeal to a lot of people. And people can also distract themselves and get disoriented and think that that's what love is, and therefore not even pursue the idea that that represents. Like, some people will choose not to love 
simply because they don't like the way a Valentine's Day heart drawing looks. You know, that's really funny, but we are attached to aesthetics and, and decorations. I mean, it's, it's like when someone gets into fitness and they go and they buy a fitness outfit. Or it's like, I, I'm going to start hiking. I'm going to start hiking. And so you buy, you know, hiking boots and the latest backpack that holds water with a little, uh, a little tube that comes from your back and into your mouth so you can walk and sip water whenever you want. And part of that is some of those things are functional, sure. You know, some shoes are better, boots are better for hiking. Some clothes are better suited. It, it's convenient to have your water source available at any time. But so much of it, too, though, is the appearance. I want to be, since I'm going to go hiking, I want to embody the idea of a hiker. It's not just about hiking and having the things I need to do that. It's about looking the part and being the part. It's being part of some kind of culture. And sometimes that's important. Sometimes it's cool to feel like you're doing the, the thing that you're supposed to do when you act a certain way or when you're into a certain thing. Oh, I started listening to this kind of music, so I got to buy a leather jacket. A leather jacket, a leather jacket, and put spikes on it. You know, sometimes you want to embody that thing. And often that comes from a place of not really feeling like, uh, it's, it's feeling like you have to in a way. It's feeling like if you don't embody the thing, if you don't follow the directions on the prescription, that somehow the medicine isn't going to work. If you get into heavy metal and you don't, you know, wear the jean jacket covered in patches the heavy metal prescription, it ain't going to work. You're never going to get better. The medicine's never going to work. We kind of have that idea, and that does, it, it can work, though. I mean, sometimes that's the how faking it till you make it work works. But it's not really the thing. It's never the thing, in my opinion. I shouldn't be so absolute about it, um, but I, I do feel like when you just, when you feel the need to embody the thing, sometimes that can actually take you off the path that you're that you think that you're walking down and maybe it's all one big path I think it often is I don't it's hard to really when I look back at my life in all my 34 years my many you know but when I just look back at everything that's led me here it doesn't feel anymore like it used to feel like a bunch of branches it used to feel like all these forks in the road and now I just look back and I'm like, man, it was always just one big road. And what I thought were branches were just little ruts. They were, you know, just just little, they were all part of the same road. It was just uneven terrain at certain points. But uh, But yeah, we like to dress the part. We like to embody the thing that we want to be. And sometimes that helps us become the thing. But other times we realize that the thing had nothing to do with that at all. The thing had nothing to do with the way that it was decorated. And that's, I, I'd like that quote to be on my tombstone. The thing had nothing to do with the way it was decorated. I joke, but I, I'd be actually totally fine with that. And I feel like that would be some kind of meta joke 
to have on your tombstone? Because what's a better example of that statement than a tombstone itself? This thing doesn't represent, you know, this decoration doesn't represent the thing. Oh, this tombstone, it represents the eternal nature of my soul. You know, tattoo that on my body after I die. How come that's not a thing? How come we don't tattoo people after they die? Because <laughs> there's no consent? I don't know. This is a long intro. I'm going to read this little quote, which I feel like boils it all down very nicely. It's I'm not going to read the whole poem because I don't want to torture anybody, especially myself. But just this one line from the poem, which is, Those who try Zen meditation even once wipe away beginningless crimes. Even once. Those who try Zen meditation even once wipe away beginningless crimes. But we're going to play a song now. Now that the air has been cleared, now that a period, or at least a semicolon, has been placed on that opening monologue, uh, we're going to play the first song by a group called the Trio Vells. V-E-L-L-S. You know, I've talked a lot about how many doo-wop groups use Dell, like D-E-L, or even sometimes D-E-L-L, and I'm not sure why. The Dell Satins, even guys' names, Dell Shannon, but a lot of groups use Dell-something. Uh, but Vels, I think they just liked anything that ends in an L sound. Vel, Dell, I don't know why. It's one of those things that, you know, I just don't, I don't think I'll ever know. I don't think I'll ever understand. It just appealed to doo-wop groups during that era. Dell and Vel, but the trio Vels. And this song's funny because it's called Dusty's Way He Feels About You. And they actually have multiple songs that start with Dusty's. Like they had a song member or they had a band member who wrote some songs. And I guess anytime he wrote a song, they had to put Dusty's at the beginning, which I like. You know, it, it makes it very awkward. It makes it very strange. It makes it seem like it had nothing to do with trying to appeal to people. It doesn't seem, it seems to be something that is more inwardly focused, something that comes from within the band. How's this for a pretentious analysis of some band, like, naming their songs Dusty's, Dusty's Way He Feels About You? But this is a great one. This is a great song for the summer, for the heat, uh, let this song guide you toward the sun. And once you got that sun in your eyes, you know, maybe you should just lay down by the water. Way I feel about you. Way I feel about you. I love you, baby, with all my heart. Even though we're far apart. Without no love, no moon above Oh yeah The way I feel about you Oh yeah 
Darling, I will never be untrue Cause my heart belongs to you You said you'd never stay away too long If I would do you wrong Honey, honey, hurry back to me We'll be together continually, baby The way I feel about you Dusty's powerful songwriting ability. That's what I have to say in response to that. Big Dusty. What a great song that was. Dusty. Um, But we're going to play a couple songs here by a group called The Dream Heirs. That was the Trio Vels. Well, now we're going with The Dream Heirs. They both have hyphens in the name because that's just a thing. Doo-wop is very hyphen-oriented, and I may have, last time I discussed hyphens, which I'm sure has happened on this show, I may have mentioned that when I was growing up, I had a good friend named Eric as well, and he spelled his name with a K, mine is with a C, but he, uh, they decided to call me Stony, you know, because that was actually my dad's nickname, my grandfather's nickname, who knew that if your last name starts with Stone, People will call you Stony. I like it. You know, at the time, I didn't really care. It was never a nickname that I wanted people to call me, but I didn't mind it when they did. But his mom was my soccer coach, and (laughs) she thought it was unfair that everyone called me by a nickname and not my proper name. So she decided that, you know, to be fair, they were going to come up with a nickname for the other Eric, too so that we would both be called by nicknames, and therefore nobody on the team would actually be called Eric. <laughs> but his last name, he had one of those hyphenated last names, and his mom said, from now on we're going to call him Hyphen. And you, know, you can imagine that that took off. I love the idea, though. I love that, you know, I, I still remember being at soccer practice and her saying, you know, what nickname should we call the other Eric? just so we're fair. And she's like, how about hyphen? I like how that just came to her. Let's call him hyphen. Uh, But uh, yeah, that stuck. I think by the next day, I don't think anybody except for her used it. (laughs) And what a sweetheart, what a sweet thing to do, to think. You know, it's not like I complained. It's not like I was like, you know, it's just not fair that I'm the only Eric called by a nickname. It's not fair that I'm calling me by a nickname. You know, it's not like I was complaining about it. But just, you know, that motherly 
impulse made her go, you know, it's not fair that one of the Eric's has to go by some alternate name. Although I liked Stoney. And there are a few people, like some parents and people from my childhood, who continued to call me Stoney. It just, it's cool. I like it. I like, uh, nicknames are cool. You know, especially a good organic nickname. Some people come up with their own nicknames. Some people try to force a nickname. But uh, it's when someone just comes up with an organic nickname for you, you just you accept it. It's nice. It's nice. But uh, this next group, it's it's a hyphen group, another hyphen group. But yeah, calling a kid hyphen, yeah, that was really catchy. <laughs> Everybody called him hyphen after that. No, of course not. Um, but I like the thought. And I just like that she went with hyphen. But doo-wop groups loved hyphens. A lot of these groups, I mean, we're starting with two hyphen groups. And there's many more hyphen groups I could play. And this is probably the only show, this is the only time in history that somebody's even used the term hyphen group. But it's a thing. And this next group, the Dream Heirs. What's interesting about them is they're way late. This is not music that was recorded during the prime time of doo-wop. It was recorded much later. But unlike a lot of later doo-wop, and I believe this is, uh, I'd have to check, but I believe this is from the late 70s, maybe. It might even be from the early 80s. And that's normally a reason to not play doo-wop. Because any doo-wop that was recorded later... You know, sometimes I'll watch those PBS specials where they have a bunch of old doo-wop groups perform their hits from decades earlier, and I actually enjoy watching those. It's really nice to see old people in the crowd singing along and to see these guys and women who still have wonderful voices playing their hits, and there's really something magical about that. But whenever a group of people try to do doo-wop in you know, the post-60s era, or even the mid-60s or later. You know, even something as late as 1966 to me is often not going to appeal to me. But every once in a while, something does. And even if the production isn't quite as raw, it still has an appeal. And that's the case here with the Dream Airs. And these two songs, to me, are are very powerful. For later doo-wop, they are very powerful. Forever in Love is just a classic style. I don't want to call the song itself a classic since it was recorded late in the game. But it's in a classic style. It makes you feel good. Kind of like that last song. It's not similar to that, but it has a similar just feel good sensibility to it. And then uh so Forever in Love is going to be the first Dreamers song here and that's going to be followed up with a the wonderfully titled By a Van. By a Van. As in purchase a a vehicle called a van, which when I first heard this song, I didn't realize that it was recorded as late as it was because I don't know when vans were created, but did vans exist in the 1950s and 60s? I don't, not in the way that we currently understand them. It'd be something worth looking up. Like when did the first Astro van, you know, when did the, when did the first like publicly available van come around? Because you don't think about people driving those in decades past, but it makes a lot more sense when you realize this song was recorded in the 70s or even a little bit later, where vans were very common. Because we think about vans in the 70s, we think about teenagers and 
just parties, teenagers and young people partying in vans. We think about that in the 70s and 80s. It was kind of, there was a van culture. And vans, I don't think they'd become ironic yet. Because people like, like, vans are like a punchline whenever you hear about them today. You know, when someone drives a van, unless, the, unless they're a plumber, it seems to be a punchline. It's like, oh, he drives a van. Or when a young person, like if, you, if you've ever had a friend who buys a van, I mean, bands will do it. You know, people, people, if someone buys a van for anything except a functional reason, like going on tour or, you know, you're a, a repairman. But if you buy a van just to have a van, especially a big van, especially a big sort of workman van, there's always a punchline to it. And they're associated with pedophiles, teenagers partying, you know, getting down. There's sort of this deviant. We associate vans with deviance. And there's minivans, of course, but that's a whole other thing. But vans. But this, what's funny about this song is it's hard for me to really decipher all of the lyrics, but the song seems to be about a fat guy. Like, if you, the, the few lyrics that I feel like I can decipher, they seem to be about a guy who's so fat that he has to buy a van. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But there's definitely some lyrics about a guy tipping the Richter scale and needing to get a van. Which, it's funny to think about someone writing this song, being like, oh, I'm going to write a song about a guy who's so fat he needs a van. But just the song title alone, Buy a Van. I like it. Especially in a doo-wop context. But first we're going to start with Forever in Love, and then we're going to buy that van.
a lamb a dam dam van van ram a lamb a lamb a dam dam van ram a lamb a lamb a dam dam van van ram a lamb a lamb a dam dam van ram a lamb a lamb a dam dam van van ram a lamb a lamb a dam dam van I guess you know the story of the man who bought a house. He got a deal in records with a private battle guy, and now he's got ten more. Do you think song, as any song about buying a van, should be very active. Be an active buyer. Can't be a passive buyer when you're purchasing a van. It's not something you just fall into. You got to think about it, and you got to look for the right deal. But uh, yeah, we're going to stay active here. We're going to stay very active, and we're going to play a song by the Osborne Brothers. It's very twangy. It's country. I don't know if it's bluegrass. I, don't, I just don't even know what bluegrass is. I know that my limited experiences with bluegrass just haven't appealed to me. And maybe it's another decoration thing. Maybe it's that bluegrass fans tend to be, I don't know, maybe it's maybe it has more to do with the fans, because that can be the ultimate repellent, is when you think somebody else who you're repelled by is into something, therefore that thing can't possibly appeal to you. And that's a roadblock, you know, and sometimes you got to get around it, but it's not always possible, it's not always necessary. Sometimes it's nice just to be repelled by some things and be fine with that. 
just be fine with that. Um, but this song, Osborne Brothers' Rocky Top, it's, you know, very, it's, it's a quick-paced and active twangy tune. And a lot of the country I listen to tends to be more downbeat, slower. It, it breathes in most cases. But I would like to expand into some more active material. The Leuven Brothers managed to do both very well. You know, the Leuven Brothers, who uh, are kind of my standard. They were my introduction. Not, not my introduction to country music itself, but my introduction to liking country music. The Leuvens were the first country group where I said, as a teenager, you know what, there might be something to this kind of music. Even though a lot of the other country I like sounds nothing like the Leuven Brothers, I don't know that anything does. But they were the first group that just made me realize, hey, there might be something to this. But the Osborne Brothers, Rocky Top, uh, this is a fun one. I, yeah, that's true. The, the use of music is really common. And when I do this with my friends here in Denver, we'll play some songs. And um, I know we can't do it here because of copywriting. That, that would be a problem. But here in Denver, we usually like to play some crazy stuff. Well, you know, our favorite is or my favorite is to play some ACDC music. So some old eighties hard rock music that really gets you stirred up. Um, but for me also, I, I like to do this with Alanis Morissette music cause it opens the heart for me. Um, there's some country songs too, that really send a thrill up my spine and really get the energy going. So for people trying this at home, if you, if you're watching this as a recording in the future, at a certain point, you might pause, play some music that really gets you going and lifts your spirits and then try using the technique. What we could try today, I've been thinking about how, how can we incorporate music is um, after we try the, the standard method, we could try singing the happy birthday song together and replace one of the words uh, in the song with the word bend. And we scream bend at a certain point in the song. <laughs> Wish that I was on old Rocky Top down in the Tennessee hills. Ain't no smoggy smoke on Rocky Top, ain't no telephone bills. Once I had a girl on Rocky Top, half bear the other half cat. Wild as a mink, but sweet as soda pop, I still dream about that. Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Rocket Top Tennessee Rocket Top Tennessee Once two strangers climbed old Rocket Top looking for a moonshine still Strangers ain't come down from Rocket Top reckon they never will Corn won't grow at all on Rocket Top dirt's too rocky by far That's why all the folks on Rocket Top get their corn from a jar Rocky Top, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Top, Rocky Top, Tennessee, Rocky Top, Tennessee.
simple again. Lucky talk, you'll always be home sweet home to me. Good old Rocky Top, Rocky Top, Tennessee. Rocky Top, Tennessee. Rocky Top, Tennessee. That was the Osborne Brothers, uh, followed up by some applause. Was it pouring rain or applause? I don't know. I prefer pouring rain. My kind of applause is pouring rain. People putting their hands together don't, don't mean nothing to me. It's only when there's pouring rain outside that I feel like the universe is clapping. Universe is clapping. And we're going to play a, a block here by a group called The Nobles. And later they recruited a vocalist and became Nicky and The Nobles. I guess Nicky was a real cool guy. In the same way that the trio Vells named songs Dusty's Way He Feels About You and did that multiple times with multiple songs for some reason. You know, when The Nobles recruited Nicky as their lead vocalist, they decided to put his name out front. Nikki and the Nobles. But these songs are pre-Nikki. These are this is the pre-Nikki Nobles. And these songs span a number of years. They were without Nikki for a long time. And the first song is Poor Rock and Roll. Poor as in poverty, rock and roll as in rock and roll music. And it's from 1957. So rock and roll was still pretty new, and this is a raw song. Uh, it's uh, they're a doo-wop group, you know, but uh, it's it's a driving tune, and it's called "Poor Rock and Roll," which I think is a great title. Poor rock and roll. It's not obvious. It's not an obvious statement to make. Poor rock and roll, and it's you know from 1957, and that's going to be followed up with a song from 1964 called "Darkness." And I've played this song before. But the version I played was by Roy Orbison. And it's actually one of my all-time favorite Roy Orbison songs that is very uncommon. You won't find it on many of his greatest hits albums, if any. But to me, it's one of the just the best Roy Orbison performances. And this is almost like somebody's little brother covering it. But it's still really good. It's just a really well-written song. And actually, I didn't realize this. I've been listening to this song for years, both Roy Orbison's version as well as the Nobles' version. And I just thought to look, and it's actually written by Gene Pitney, which blew my mind, but not really. Because the song is so well-written, it's so good. that The fact that it was written by Pitney, of all people. like Of course, an angel wrote a song that was expertly performed by an archangel. You know what I mean? It's not that surprising when you think in those terms. But it's from 1964. But what I like is even though there's a, God, a a seven-year gap between poor rock and roll and this darkness, the nobles retained their rawness, which you wouldn't necessarily expect from a group called the nobles. And then to close out the block... I'm going to do another song from 1964, and this is the song that actually made me a Nobles fan. 
It's Crime Don't Pay. And it follows a very similar driving melody as Poor Rock and Roll. They're going for pretty much the same exact sound. And I've talked about that before. When one group has multiple songs that sound alike, it's always interesting to me. Like It's, it's kind of like you figure that's the way their blood sounds. That's the way their heartbeat sounds. And we've gotten more used to that with modern music. As genres have split deeper and deeper into subgenres, and you have some bands. I mean, like as a heavy metal fan, I think about some bands, especially in you know black metal, death metal, that kind of thing, where their entire sound is basically them playing the same song over and over, with just a slightly different structure. And uh, you know, sometimes bands will just be like, "Oh yeah, you know, I like this song by this one band." And so our entire band is just going to sound like that one song. So it's kind of interesting to me when an older band who were more known for varying their song styles, especially if they were trying to have some kind of pop appeal. You know, it's interesting to me, though, when they do more than one song with a very similar melody or a very similar approach. But Crime Don't Pay, the lyrics are just fantastic. Speaking of samples, this song has samples. It has samples of gunfire, of, you know, police sounds. It's great, and I, I think it's a great message for right now. I think this, this song has a great message for 2020, which it turns out is the same message for any time. turns out the same things that are important in 2020, no matter what somebody tries to tell you, no matter how much somebody tries to tell you, oh, 2020 is different. It's a different year. Everything's different. 2020 much? Hey, t- hey, 2020 much? You know, no matter how much people say that shit, remember, 2020 is just another year. And someday somebody is going to look back on 2020. And I'm going to stand by this song, Crime Don't Pay. That's true now. It was true yesterday. It'll be true tomorrow. The nobles knew it. But this is just a fantastic song. Fantastic. But first, we're going to start with poor rock and roll. And this group is from Connecticut. Connecticut doo-wop. Crime don't pay, but first, poor rock and roll, darkness. Let's go.
that um, was not to my liking. But in any case, it's still a great book, and I would still recommend it, even though I didn't like it, because the themes that it deals with are so are so great and are so relevant that they can't be ignored. about your mental state. Some people are saying that you are living on the edge right now, that you're not too mentally stable. I'm living on the edge. And if anybody out here is not living on the edge, you're taking up too much room. Me. <laughs> 
I don't always love samples in my music, but sometimes samples are just so perfect and they add such a three-dimensionality. Especially when they're primitive like that. You know, you figure that's 1964 sampling. But they add something to it. Especially a song with a great message like Crime Don't Pay. The plan I had was guaranteed. Great opening lyric. And, you know, any song that's called Crime Don't Pay and it starts with a lyric like The plan I had was guaranteed. Well, you know it's not going to go according to plan when you hear that. Uh, but another lyric that I really like in there was, I went running down the street as fast as I could, lift my feet. Didn't try to sing it there, but I tried to get the punctuation of it right. The enunciation, the delivery, the rhythm. But, uh, you know, it's very hard for me right now. You know, I feel such an impulse to have opinions. Uh, maybe a compulsion, not so much an impulse, but I feel compelled, not impelled. I feel compelled to have opinions, and it's just part of what we do. It's part of what we do as living creatures. And, you know, one of the disciplines that you have to learn to develop is to free yourself from opinions. And you'll never do it completely. It's just like that most distant shore. It's like that objective perfection that you know you'll never reach. But if you steer yourself away, and if you run a tight enough ship, but you don't force it, you just learn how to not react and not respond and not let those gut feelings turn into vines that just wrap their way around your insides and then they come out your mouth in the form of, I think, you know, it's actually this. You know, you just got to learn how to contain that. And those vines will still work their way through you sometimes and they'll still come out of your mouth and they'll wrap, you know, your entire head will be covered in the vines of opinion and you'll barely be able to see. All you'll be able to see is that thing that you said. Your entire world will be shaped. Your entire vision will be clouded. Because, you know, what you think and what you say, it does shape your world. It certainly shapes your vision of the world around you, which is a good reason to learn how to restrain your opinion and to learn how to do that so that it's not forceful, so that you're not always running around with one hand around your own neck you know, it doesn't need to be a fight all the time, but you just learn how to do it on, you know, just easy come, easy go. Opinions come easily and they go easily. And when they stick around and when you need to say them, well, that's because you're not perfect. And there are times where this imperfect world just seems to need your input. It just needs you. The truth isn't going to be known if you don't say it. Which is funny, that's just the, the funniest idea to me about the idea that there's this objective truth out there. But if you, if little old you doesn't acknowledge it, it's, nobody's going to know. How powerful could the objective truth possibly be if it requires you to acknowledge it openly, loudly, forcefully? It's probably not much of a truth if it's not going to be there without you letting everybody know, right? But it's easier said than done, which seems to be true for everything. 
But uh, it's it's just it's one of those things though that you'll always contend with. You'll always have, even if it's inside, even if you never express it. Because I don't even like that. I don't even like having opinions inside of myself. Even if I don't feel compelled to express them, I don't even like having an opinion inside of myself. Unless I do, sometimes you know, sometimes I do like my opinions. But I guess just you know, that's just one of the. One of the most basic forms of ego wrestling that we do is just the desire to express an opinion. It goes, you know, you think about art, you think about these deeper ideas that we contend with. But to me, the ultimate battle with your ego is just needing to express your opinion. And when things are heated like they are right now, when there are all these different sources of information coming your way, there are all these different things to look at and process and think about, and all these other people who are also looking, processing, and think of, thinking about the same things, and they might have a different stance than you. They might have a, a lit- literally a different vantage point from you, which informs their, you know, which informs their their own opinion differently than yours. You know, uh, and so there's just all this. They're basically all these temptations, tempting that opinion out of you. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't have one, and it doesn't mean it's bad when you do have one. But I think it's something you can learn to restrain. And I am going to read an entire passage here. It's not a poem. So I'm circumventing the non-poem rule. The rule where I can't read an entire poem on this show. But it's not a poem. It's actually just a an entire statement that's worth thinking about. And it's also from the teachings of the Buddha book that I referred to earlier. And in this case, it's a passage called Free from All Opinion. Free from All Opinion. This I do now declare after investigation. There is nothing among all doctrines that such a one as I would embrace. Seeing misery in philosophical views without adopting any of them, searching for truth, I discovered inward peace. Not by any philosophical opinion, not by tradition, not by knowledge, not by virtue and holy works can anyone say that purity exists, nor by absence of philosophical opinion, by absence of tradition, by absence of knowledge, by absence of virtue and holy works either. Having abandoned these without adopting anything else, let one, calm and independent, not desire any resting place." One who thinks oneself equal to others, or superior, or inferior, for that very reason disputes. But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person the notions equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. The sage for whom the notions equal and unequal do not exist, would he say, this is true? Or with whom should he dispute, saying, this is false? With whom should he enter into dispute? An accomplished person does not, by a philosophical view or by thinking, become arrogant. For he is not of that sort. Not by holy works, nor by tradition is he led. He is not led into any of the resting places of the mind. For one who is free from views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. 
But those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. That's from the, the Sutta Nipada, if I'm pronouncing that right. Maybe Sutta, 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 I don't know. I didn't go to pronunciation class, but I love the way that ends. <laughs> I love, I'll just read that last passage. Uh, Those who grasp after views and philosophical opinions, they wander about in the world annoying people. I love just that phrasing, annoying people. I love in this Buddhist text, they wander about annoying people, just like I'm doing right now, I'm sure. I mean, uh, <laughs> I definitely take that to heart when I read that, as someone who does grasp for philosophical views and, you know, does, but also does try to just let myself rest, who does try to be free from all opinion, as that passage is titled. Uh, but it's one of those things, though, where you'll never achieve perfection. Part of it is, part of resting is understanding that you will feel compelled, you will annoy people, you will annoy yourself. It's kind of what I'm talking about when I say, even if I don't feel the need to express an opinion or express a viewpoint, even if it's purely philosophical, even if I don't feel the need to say it out loud, sometimes simply having it inside is too annoying. It's too annoying for me to even bear for my own sake. You know what I mean? It's sometimes having an opinion is too much for even me to bear, even if I don't feel the need to express it, just knowing it's there inside of me. And that's not like some self-hating thing. I mean, I, I often like my opinions. They're mine. Um, but it is one of those things where you can be the very person that you're annoying the most with your viewpoints, and often you are. At least that's true for me. But we're going to play a song here by Joe Williamson called 99 Miles, and as the name would suggest, as that measurement would suggest, it's a road song. Joe Williamson with 99 Miles. Not to be confused with a hundred. It's ninety-nine miles across the turny turnpike. Some say a hundred and two, but it's not too far across the turner pike when the hangman's waiting for you. I shot a man in sand and tone, and I didn't hang around. He took the only girl I could call my own, a girl from Tulsa town. It's 99 miles across the Turner Turnpike, some say 102, but it's not too far across a Turner Pike when the hangman's waiting for you. Well, they say there's a curse on the Turner Turnpike. I believe that it's so. There's a highway man on the Turner Turnpike. Everywhere I go, it's 99 miles across the Turner Turnpike. Some say 102, but it's not too far across the Turner Pike when the hangman's waiting for you. It's 99 miles across the Turner Turnpike Some say 102 But it's not too far across the Turner 
hike when the hangman's waiting for you. I'll never get across that Turner Turnpike. Shouldn't have done it, I know. You can't keep the curse on the Turner Turnpike anyway. What the unknown does mean gene the unknown gives me a real dry mouth the unknown makes me a nervous wreck the unknown puts chills right up and down my spine like the unknown gives me goosebumps all over my body school is over the kids are gay summer's here it's here to stay They all go out to play They all run to the beach To spend this lovely day I will always say So 99 Miles Road Song was followed up by Jim Easter and the Artistics. Interesting name for a group, Jim Easter, a spring holiday with a song about summer, but his group name, the Artistics, not the Artists, the Artistics, which is a better choice than calling them the Artists. Imagine if they'd been called Jim Easter and the Artists. Kind of sounds cool to me, actually. (laughs) That actually does sound kind of cool. Something that's just that obvious. A group calling themselves the artists, a musical group. 
but summer's here to stay. And as the opening lyrics said, school is over, the kids are gay. You know, there's a lot of songs from that era that use the word gay. And of course, that's always been a punchline. As long as I've been alive, anytime the word gay is used in its traditional sense to mean happy, kids snicker. I don't know about kids today, though, because that lyric might be more relevant now than ever. School is over and the kids are gay. I have nothing to add. I have no opinion on that. I'm just saying that lyric may be more relevant than ever. Um, but uh, we're going to, you know, summer's here to stay. We know that. We know it's still July. We haven't even hit August yet. So summer's sticking around. It's staying around. We got more summer ahead. But uh, we're going to close out here with uh, two songs by a guy that everybody knows. Personally, spiritually, everybody knows this man, Elvis Presley. And uh, I just finished reading what was called a spiritual biography of Elvis Presley. It's called The Seeker, I believe, and spiritual biography. A very simple, it was mostly just, you know, the the basic facts about his life. I read it in a matter of hours throughout the last week, just reading a little bit each morning. I read it very quickly, and it's mostly the well-known facts about him, but it does focus on his spiritual inclinations, which were very important to him. And I do feel that the longer we have gone in the post-Elvis world, the more he does feel like a spiritual icon, as well as an artist, of course, you know, not to be confused with Jim Easter and the artistics, but, you know, Elvis, of course, I mean, his music is what is left. He was an entertainer. But I think that he was so different, and we know that, you know, we just know that there was just something entirely different about him when he emerged. He completely changed American culture. He created something that needed to be continually filled, even just in the form of, you know, teen pop stars. Yeah, we had Sinatra, we had the Rat Pack, there were Bing Crosby, there were famous vocalists, male vocalists in particular, that people cherished and loved. But Elvis created something with, with a great deal, a greater amount of propulsion, and I feel that we've been continually trying to catch up to that since his time, where we're constantly trying to put people in the position that he was in. And I don't feel that they're able to withstand it. I don't think anybody is. I don't think that he could withstand it. I mean, we know Britney Spears, you know, who's on the female end of the spectrum, but we know how she's under lock and key. She's basically a child again who has to you know, get her father's permission to do every anything, everything and anything. And there's a whole movement that's like free Britney, which I haven't really looked into. I don't really want to look into it. I don't really want to look into it. But, you know, we can see what this stuff does. We're putting someone on that grand of a stage does something to somebody, especially when they are an artist. But in Elvis's case, I think he transcended simply being an artist. And I do believe he was something more. And I wasn't raised... By Elvis fans, my parents weren't fans of Elvis. They were, uh, you know, f- they were born in 1948, so they were, you know, a little bit after his time. You know, there's, there's my my mom's sisters. I think were into Elvis, her older sisters, but they weren't really there on the ground floor. They weren't quite teenagers when Elvis hit it big. So nobody raised me to think of Elvis this way. 
and no friends influenced me. It was just something that I don't know what happened. I, I really don't. And I think those are the best things. Just like that sample a minute ago about the unknown. Sometimes it's the unknown that has the greatest influence on you. Uh, often it is. For me, it is. I would say in my life, the greatest influence, e- even when I know something, what led me there was the unknown, and that knowledge never answered the unknown. It just gave me some kind of grounding in myself. Because that's really what the unknown teaches you, is it teaches you how to know yourself with the, the fine print that says you can never truly know yourself, but you can at least be comfortable with who and what you are beyond this body, beyond this life. And I wouldn't be able to explain the unknown, you know, whatever it was, the unknown trajectory that, you know, made me an Elvis fan, but that also seems more significant than just being a fan of someone as an artist and not, you know, not worshiping, recognizing that this was a man who had his imperfections, which we are all familiar with. And if you're not, the resources are available you could find out all about this man's deepest imperfections, and everybody who ever knew him was asked to comment on that, which alone should tell you some tell you something about being in that position and what that does to somebody, especially when they were the first lab specimen. You know, he was the first experiment in so many ways. And to have left the legacy that he's left is just, it, there really aren't words for that. The legacy that he has left, it just sort of melts into that unknown in my, from my view. But I'm, I'm going to play two songs that I feel are especially relevant and having just finished that book. And I recognize I never did a book review of Gulliver's Travels, which I said I would do, and I think it's too late. I've already read a couple books since then. Great sociological fiction that you know, it just really highlights the absurdity of any civilization, and it does it by placing this character, Gulliver, in these weird, you know, one, he's a giant among tiny people, and the next the next voyage, he ends up a, a tiny person in a, in a town of huge giant people, and the next one, he ends up in a village of horse people, a kingdom of horse people, and in each of those, it reveals something about our own you know, the relativity of culture, the absurdity of civilization, but also the value of, you know, just virtue. So that's my review. <laughs> that's my review of Gulliver's Travels. Uh, but I, I recommend, uh, yeah, I don't know that I recommend the, the spiritual biography of Elvis I just read, unless you already see Elvis in that role. I don't know that I would say, read this, you have to read this. I think as somebody who is already a fan and who already has sort of a spiritual, I don't want to say a spiritual relationship to Elvis, that's getting kind of out there, but just who already sees Elvis in a spiritual role and places importance on that as an American. To me, he was the first American demigod, at least outside of politics. You know, there's people like George Washington, Paul Revere, the great town crier. Um, but, you know, I think America developed its own demigods through, you know, th- through those early years, through its culture, 
through its heroes. But Elvis seems to be the first one that came purely through pop culture. And there was something different about him that wasn't matched by Frank Sinatra. There was something deeply eccentric, but yet simple. And that seems to be the the great... That seems to be what I was talking about at the beginning of this episode, where it's like we want things to be complex and secret and esoteric. But the reality is, is that they are far more mundane and normal than we can even comprehend. And that's sort of how I felt reading about Elvis. That's sort of how I feel when I listen to Elvis. It's all of that hidden and unknown you know, it's all of those hidden and unknown aspects of what it is to be part of this life and part of this world, and for that matter, a citizen of this country. But there's something so simple about it. There's something so simple about him, and that's how people described him, with a certain innocence. They described him as maybe even naive. And so I guess that's sort of what it all comes down to. It's being all-knowing but innocent. And I don't mean that Elvis was all-knowing, but it's sort, of, it's, it's sort of what it comes down to when you do find yourself on a certain path. When you've spent your time thinking, overthinking, overanalyzing, searching, and reaching a point where all-knowing seems to be the most innocent and untainted place you could ever possibly imagine. But uh, I don't expect anybody to to know to know what I am getting at here. I think it's better just to close out with a couple of Elvis songs. The first one is simply called "I Believe," and the second one is "The Impossible Dream." And "The Impossible Dream" is from 1971. I know offhand, and that's a period of Elvis that I am particularly drawn to. I'm particularly drawn to early 70s Elvis for some reason. I think that was before he had, the early 70s, is, it's, it's right before Elvis got completely consumed. He wasn't quite on the road to death yet. It was kind of his last hurrah. And that was also a period where he really was particularly vulnerable. I feel like his soul was very vulnerable, but it wasn't overwhelmed with crisis like it would be by the mid-70s. So the early 70s, it seemed to be when he still had a fighting chance. And I've never actually thought about this. I've just, I, I know that I gravitate toward his early 70s material. I believe Burning Love came out of that time as well. And it was when he was performing in Vegas. And people were still impressed by him. You know, and I don't know that, it, you know, people were... Di- <clears throat> I think people would end up... I got <clears throat> something in my throat. Maybe I shouldn't talk about that. Maybe I got something in my throat because I shouldn't even talk about that. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. Something of the the early 70s to me, it was like he was on the edge, but it was before he was consumed by what was on the other side of that edge. It was before the abyss consumed him, before he fell completely in. He was just kind of on the edge, and a lot of very pure and powerful music came out of that. And for whatever reason, that's what I'm drawn to more than anything. More than young Elvis, I'm drawn to this early 70s period where he seemed to have a creative renaissance. 
that spoke volumes. So Elvis Presley, I believe, followed with The Impossible Dream. I wish everyone uh, a great end of your July, and may your early August be wonderful too. I believe for every drop the rain falls, a flower grows. I believe that somewhere in the darkest night, a candle glows. I believe for everyone who goes astray. Someone will come to show the way. I believe, I believe, I believe of the storm's smallest prayer and a shield of I believe someone. my heart.
Oh! 